You're listening to Discography Discussion, episode 219, Linkin Park. Hosted by Dan Terry. Um, no. John Beatty. That's why I said I'm controlling the narrative now. <laughs> and Joseph Wren. Dan was literally drunk the whole time. Presented by DiscussMetal.com. And if you find a place for your head between these headphones, then you are ready for this episode of Discography Discussion. I am Joe. That is Dan. That is John. What is up, everybody? Welcome to episode... No, hold on. I don't know what episode number it is. 219, <laughs> Linkin so Park. Gross. We're talking about Linkin Park. Uh, this is something new that we're doing for you guys. We are going to be doing video versions of the podcast. So you're going to be getting this raw, unedited, I mean, a little bit edited. Uh, you know, I said something really, really heinous, you know, before we uh, before we were officially recording. So, you know, we don't want you guys to hear that. So we're going to jump on it and we're going to have a lot of fun with these video podcasts. And I thought that Linkin Park would be a really good one to start with, right? Because, well, Linkin Park is a band that I feel like is almost universally loved, uh, especially nowadays. And so I wanted to put our best foot forward here and uh, get a get a good discography discussion on Linkin Park. So I hope you guys enjoyed this video version. Uh, if not, then you can listen to the audio version. So it's uh, totally up to you. We're all about giving you options. Where can they find that audio version, Dan? Oh, you can find the audio version at DiscussMetal.com. And uh, you can download the podcast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, uh, anywhere, really. Podchaser. It basically, if there's an app that allows you to listen to podcasts, we're on it, most likely. We're even on Pandora. I think, I think we're out streaming Trapped right now. Gentlemen, New Metal May 2021. It's time, and we're starting off big. Lincoln Park. Well, it's interesting about this because we've we've kind of beat around the bush as to whether we were going to do a Lincoln Park episode for quite a while. I mean, probably, I think we were talking in 2018, potentially, of doing a Lincoln Park uh, discussion, and... The reality is, is that there was just too much associated with it, I think, at that time, you know, and I didn't want to like, I didn't want to release a super, super positive episode just because of what happened with Chester, you know, um, I felt like that would be disingenuous, but I also didn't want to like release at the same time an ultra negative episode because of what had happened with Chester, right? Uh, I mean, I'm not a total monster, uh, so I wanted, I wanted, you know, a little bit of time for the dust to settle for us to be able to talk about this band objectively while still giving, you know, respect. You know, I'm not here to talk trash on, on somebody's legacy. So, uh, in that regard, we're just going to give our personal feelings about the records and and how they made us feel when they came out. You know, if you're if you're familiar with this show, uh, then you you guys kind of already know what to expect uh, for, from what we do. But uh, for me, uh, but but for this one in particular, if this is if this is your first episode, um, you know, I, I want you to know that we're just giving our honest opinions here, and this isn't uh, this isn't anything meant to demean anybody, and I don't think it's even going to be a totally negative episode. That's that's the thing that I love the most about doing these podcasts is realizing that you can't just look at one thing that a band did and decide whether oh they're a great band, or on the flip side, hear one thing that you didn't like. You know, and decide that like, oh, this band's terrible. You know, almost everybody, with a few exceptions, um, fall into both categories at some point in their career. I think most people look at one thing this band did and decide that they are the greatest new metal band of all time. Is Linkin Park actually new metal? 
Sometimes. I think that's the case. John and I were actually talking about this earlier, uh, that like with new metal, it's such a hard thing to define. And I do appreciate the folks at Roach Coach doing their very best uh, every single week to try to define it. Uh, but I think the the thing that I've noticed about new metal, and we've mentioned this on other episodes, is, is that like it really depends on what you mean by new metal. You know, what was the first what was the first new metal band that you heard? Is that what you're basing everything else that you hear on? You know, uh, bands like Static X don't sound like System of a Down. System of a Down doesn't sound like Corn. Uh, Limp Biscuit lives in their own kind of sphere of of, of music, and are, and yet they're all they're all kind of put under this category of new metal. And Lincoln Park fits the bill a little bit better in that they have they have at least at the beginning of their career, you know, aggressive uh, aggressive guitar, aggressive vocalist, and uh, but then they also throw in kind of that hip hop influence, and uh, we're gonna get into all of that. But I think that I think for the most part, I would feel comfortable saying that this band has more new metal records than than not. Yeah. John sums it up in one word. <laughs> well, I mean, Dan kind of already hit on what we had talked about earlier, and that's what I said. Like, you know, when I think I'm kind of maybe the outlier in a lot of this, where it's like, you know, when people say new metal, you know, like as Dan was saying, we were talking about that. I go, I always love new metal in theory, like in practice, I should say, because it's like new metal. When people say it, it's like oh, Static X is new metal. Well, Static X is an industrial band. Um, like Dan said, Limp Biscuit, like these are the bands we were kind of referencing. And I was like, you know, Stained to a degree has been lumped in with new metal. So it's like, is Stained a new metal band? Not Dysfunction really. is definitely a new metal record. Absolutely. So? Okay. Oh, yeah. See, to me, like, I'm just like, okay, like, I don't see much separation between what they were doing to say, like, you know, Alice in Chains. Fair enough. I mean, they, that that's, that's the complexity of music. Right. And I think that's, in a lot of ways, kind of one of the dumbest things about genres and defining anyway, because bands change so much. And, you know, Linkin Park being <laughs> one of the most extreme examples of that, you oh, know, man. where you can't say it's a new metal band. I think it's more accurate sometimes to say, oh, this is a new metal record yeah. or this is a new metal or this is a metalcore record or this is a death metal record or, or whatever. But, you know, I there aren't a whole lot of bands that I can think of that just play one style from beginning to end, except for like Slayer. Three I think most people are more people are like uh, more people are like entombed, right? Where they, they play around with a lot of different <laughs> sort of styles as they go. So uh, I guess uh, I guess let's get into it, man. Uh, Lincoln Park is a band that I mean, obviously, I think everybody knows uh, <laughs> relatively well, uh, being one of the biggest bands kind of kind of ever, right? But I think one of the one of the things about Lincoln Park that attracted me to them was mainly my age. You know, like when when Hybrid Theory came out. <laughs> What's uh, your age again? What's that? What's your age again? Yeah, what's my age again? Exactly. Yeah. It's weird. Nobody liked me when I was 23. Yeah. Um, but I think that what attracted me to Lincoln Park was just the angst, really. I mean, I remember I was uh, I was in my backyard listening to a uh, so I had I had one of these radios, right? I used to like go in my backyard and play as a kid, but I had I had kind of like a, a one speaker like radio that I would carry around with me, and it was a it was a solar power radio. And uh, but it still took batteries because the solar power was really more of a gimmick back then. But uh, but it was solar powered. You could technically take the batteries out and, and still run it. And it also had a hand crank, right? So you could crank power. I mean, it was it was kind of so cool. I, I kind of wish that I still had it, to be honest. But um, I remember I was listening to our local radio, our local alternative rock radio station. And I remember the first time I heard One Step Closer and the host came on. and He's like, I've got a brand new song from a band nobody's ever heard of called Linkin Park. 
And uh, trust me, you're going to be singing this song for the next 30 years. And uh, he threw he threw on uh, One Step Closer. And I almost died. I was about to ask you, which song was it off of Hybrid Theory? Because most of the songs on there are fucking hits. I got a CD or a tape, a tape sampler uh, in high school. Someone came by with a box of uh, demo tapes, basically, uh, that the record label had sent somebody, I guess. So I remember getting it and it had, uh, I think it was With You and maybe Crawling or A Place for My Head or something like that. It was weird. It wasn't either of the singles that basically came off of this initially. So I was like, it was kind of, it was all right. Wish I still had that. It was probably worth a shitload of money. Crawling is the first song I can consciously remember hearing from Linkin Park. And it was quickly followed by their reverb segment from HBO back in the day where they played all the hits from this album. I'm just kidding. The first album, Hybrid Theory, it's all hits, except for the DJ solo. That's just acknowledgement. We'll get into that later. They even played a couple B-sides, and that was weird, because you're going to play a B-side at a live show on HBO when you're being filmed, and I can't buy that on the album? Dan knows exactly how much I hate that shit. (laughs) Well, I mean, you can buy it on the album now, but uh, whenever we talk about hybrid theory, we'll we'll get into that. High voltage. You can't shake the shot. (laughs) All right. Well, before Dan busts out Soul Calibur 3 and forfeits the game, I'm going to take this time to say thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. If you are not a subscriber, then you can find everything Discography Discussion at DiscussMetal.com. We're on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. So if you have an Amazon Echo or a Google Home, you have no excuse. Ask it to play the latest episode of the Discography Discussion podcast, and it will. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Be sure to like, favorite, and subscribe. It really helps us out. It lets us know you're listening, and now Dan is going to tell us all about five-star reviews. Well, we do enjoy our five-star reviews here on Discography Discussion. If you want to leave us a review, I think the only place you can leave us a written review right now, well, two places, actually. You can leave us a review at uh, Apple Podcasts, which we always appreciate. We always read those on the show. And uh, if you go to our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash discography discussion, we will actually uh, read that review as well. I think those are the only places where you can give us your thoughts directly. But at the end of the show, I will give you a host of other ways that you can leave your thoughts directly. And speaking of your thoughts directly, uh, we got a couple of comments on some previous episodes that we would love to read for you all right now. I got one here uh, from YouTube. That's right, YouTube. Uh, this comes from uh, this comes from uh, Hayden Inman. Uh, it's in actually it's going back a little bit to uh, episode 125, Death Angel. He says one of my favorite episodes. I always thought Death Angel were super underrated, and hearing you guys talk about how you think they probably came to the party late was a really cool insight. Ever since I discovered your podcast, it's been such a joy going back and listening to the episodes. I, I'd love to hear a Trivium episode too, and I think they have a very cool discography. And I'd love to hear Dan's thoughts on some of their newer stuff. Well, yeah, I mean. I haven't listened to a lot of the new Trivium stuff, uh, but from what I can see, uh, you know, this spoiler, this is a, this was a spoiler mini Trivium episode. Uh, they started off super, super aggressive. Uh, I remember describing them as if Metallica had stayed thrash and modernized uh, is, is kind of what Trivium reminded me of with a little bit of that metal core that we all, you know, love so much. Uh, I know they, they kind of softened out over time, but then, you know, similar to All That Remains, they kind of came back very aggressive <laughs> all of a sudden and uh that's that's the kind of stuff that i like so yeah i think i think we'll get a trivium episode out at some point for sure it's definitely on the list 
have a comment from Human Falafel on episode 217 with Cephalic Carnage. Am I saying that correctly? Cephalic Carnage. Cephalic. Yeah, you know, Cephalic. See, that's that's where the whole East Coast Midwest thing starts coming in. Is uh, where do you start pronunciation or where you put the pronunciation on your your vowels? I thought um, you were about to say pronunciating. No pronunciation that's the act of pronunciating <laughs> <laughs> anyway human falafel had to say i want heard you guys about creation is crucifixion let me go ahead and fix that for you i want to hear you guys talk about creation is crucifixion is what i'm assuming you meant to say but that's okay one of the most unique and less lesser known technical and extreme metal bands i have ever heard and will have and see, I fucked it up again. And Woolhaven is a band that I think needs more love, too. Well, maybe those will be added to the list, because I think at this point we just have every band ever on the list. So don't worry. In the words of Joe, it's on the list. We should it get Scott from Zao to come on and do a conversation about Creationist Crucifixion, because he was in that band once upon a time. Just make I that happen it, right now, dude. I yeah, think I mean, I'd send him a message. I think to be in Zao, you need to have been at least in six other bands before you can join. Yeah, but what about those guys that were in Zao back in like 1993? You think they were in six other bands? Well, they're in six other bands now. That's true. That's fair enough. It's the it's the rule of six. <laughs> rule Everyone of six. knows that. Well, we you? really appreciate that feedback, guys. We we love reading those comments, and you know, it's it's a way for us to just tell, like, oh my god, people actually are listening to the podcast, and whether whether what you say is positive or negative, it, it gives us the feedback that we so heartily desire as people that put our opinions on the internet it's always fun to kind of see uh how your opinion stacks up to whatever the general uh mindset is and i think this lincoln park episode is definitely going to have uh its own share of that i don't think we're going to agree on everything you want to shout out our beloved patrons dan i would love i would love to shout out our beloved patreon subscribers i, I would love that so so much let me just pull the list up <laughs> <laughs> been ready for days <laughs> oh yeah no we're good to, we're good to go here we've, we've actually got a couple of new ones and I'm, I'm excited to read these for you guys yeah let me step uh, in for a second this list is getting huge thank you to all of our patrons you guys are awesome seriously you're making this shit happen every single week we appreciate you it's uh you, you keep our uh keep our microphones uh lit is that is that I, do you guys have to light your microphone every every time absolutely like okay cool 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 all right so these are the these are the music makers. These are the guys that make this podcast happen, and that would include Jeremy Hall, Kyle Driver. Thank you very much, sir. I'm gonna try to read this name. I'm sorry, Timu Rontio. I can't. I, I'm sorry. I, I can't pronounce it, but I, I appreciate you. I do. Uh, Dangerous Dave, Ryan Rowe, Richard Renz, Christopher and Rebecca Sherling, Big T, Josiah Heiberg, Luke Robinson, Brandon Miranda, Ken Zapla. Tantalized Fungians. Best name ever. Jeremy Prince, Josh Moser, David Brown, Samuel Woodward, Brian Dean, Kiki Kuti, Do You Love Me? I Do Love You. Lance Allegood, The King of Metal. Alexander, Patrick Aspland, and Jeffrey De Los Santos. The Actual Mac. Thank you guys so much for your contributions every month. Like I said, I can't, I can't even, uh, I can't even begin to express my gratitude. Uh, just in that, you know, th this is a podcast that started as a labor of love, and it has continued because of your love for for what we're doing. And uh, we love hanging out with you guys every month and and talking on the Discord server and all of that. Um, it, it's it's literally one of my favorite things to do. I even got in it recently. 
John's all up in that Patreon, on that Patreon uh, love, the Patreon hangouts, all of it. They're interesting. Yeah, we got another <laughs> hangout. We got another hangout coming up here uh, pretty soon. But uh, I think by the time you're watching or hearing this episode, uh, more than likely it's already done. So I'm just going to go ahead and say that it was great. <laughs> and I can't wait to do the next one. It happens every month, right, Dan? Yeah, so I'm not going to have a massive migraine for this one. So I think I think we're going to be good. One of the few hangouts where I was like, all right, guys, you guys keep talking. I'm going to peace out, go to sleep. <laughs> and that's that is exactly what I did. At the end of the episode, if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, uh, we will get into how you guys can do that. And uh, yeah, so let's get into it, guys. Lincoln Park. Uh, this is one of those things where, you know, people are going to, if people share the video, they're going to be like, they don't start talking about Lincoln Park until 18 minutes in. So, Dan, tell me about Lincoln Park. Well, Lincoln Park is a band that started out. I'm just going to call them a rock band because I think they've at least consistently been rock for their entire career. But uh, basically, Linkin Park uh, became very famous in the early 2000s. Uh, they actually started off in 1996 as a band called Zero and then changed their name to Hybrid Theory in 1999 and then eventually ended up obviously changing their name to uh, Linkin Park uh, after that. And of course, that's whenever they hit their, their biggest stint of popularity uh, was on their first record, Hybrid Theory. This is a band that actually has a lot of material prior to Hybrid Theory, not really in the way of, of, of full-length albums, but I don't think I've ever seen a band that has as many B-sides and demos as Linkin Park has. 2000 Hybrid Theory. So with Hybrid Theory, this is, this is most people, at least most people that are our age, this is their first foray into, into Linkin Park. A lot of us heard One Step Closer or Crawling, or points of authority. I mean, there. This is a record where almost every single song was was a was a single. <laughs> I mean, every almost. I I don't think that there's any song on this album that I didn't hear on radio in some way. Pushing me away was a big single. Uh, in the end was a big single. Crawling was a big single. Points of authority was a big single. Uh, one step closer. I want to even say I heard Paper Cut uh, on the radio uh, several times. It was just one of those things where. This band blended kind of the new metal stylings of bands that we'd heard before, um, similar similar to something like Korn, although not nearly as dark. Uh, but you know, they, they had they had the aggressive vocalist who had a very smooth voice and also kind of a very uh, very intense scream. And then at the same time, which was Chester Bennington, obviously. And then we've got uh, we've got Mike Shinoda, who uh, is providing us with our with our hip hop influence. And um, they melded this together in such a way that you know I'm gonna personally say that I think Limp Biscuit melded the styles together better. <laughs> but uh, but for a lot of people, they liked that um, they liked the separation of there being two different distinct vocalists. Um, and it adds a lot of really good contrast. Although I think it is interesting that they released One Step Closer as the first single, which doesn't feature kind of what I would say to be their signature sound, you know, of, of Chester singing and then you have Mike come in there rapping. I wonder if that was just like maybe at that time in 2000, I don't remember what the, I don't really remember what the musical landscape was in 2000, but I do, I, I, I'm leaning towards they wanted to throw One Step Closer on there just so that they could um just so that they could maybe get it played on alternative rock radio you have to mention that lincoln park was huge in the year 2000 they just were it was the ultimate mainstream version of the music that we all had been listening to then for at least five years 
It had the hardcore vocals Chester does. It has the hip hop. It has the rock guitars and the down tuning, the DJs in the back, Mr. Han. Everything about this band just worked at the time. And no matter how much we liked it, no matter how much this album was great, 99% awesome with this first album. Even then, we all discussed why doesn't Chester have his own band where he just does the metal thing all the time. So it makes sense to me that One Step Closer would be the first big single, because I think whether the management would say it or not, they were thinking the same thing. And it wouldn't take very long for us to basically get a whole album of Chester. Yeah, I mean, I don't... That's kind of what I'm getting at with this whole, like, why they put One Step Closer out first is I think that this was kind of a way to endear the band to people that are, you know, they're they're aiming this at Korn fans. They're aiming this at, um, I'm trying to remember who was out then. I guess System of a Down, maybe not really System of a Down fans, but just people that listen to this type of music uh, that maybe weren't as into rap. Because I remember, you know, there. I remember, you know, back in the day, there being a lot of that, like, oh, rap is crap, and I don't want to have anything to do with it, and blah, 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 blah. But I also think, like in 2000, I feel like there were plenty of bands that were that were playing rock and 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 rap uh, combined. You know, Pod was doing it, Limp Bizkit was doing it, even Corn. You know, would have guest rappers on songs. You know, um, so I don't think that this was like necessarily a decision that they had to make. <laughs> you know, but uh, but they for some reason they made the distinction. And yeah, there were a lot of people I knew that really loved Chester and didn't like Mike so much. Um, I liked all of it though. I remember getting Hybrid Theory. Uh, I want to say I bought it at like Target, Target or Walmart, you know, one of those and uh, taking it home. And I remember my sister came home uh, from school and she was like, I heard that you bought that Linkin Park album. Did you buy the edited version of that? I heard they're like really, really, really extreme. And I was like, no, there's not a single curse word on this album anywhere. <laughs> it's 100 percent clean. And uh, good boy. Yeah, and she was like, uh, <clears throat> okay. She's like, I heard that one song One Step Closer. And I was like, right, but the worst thing that this dude says on this album is shut up. <laughs> like, that's like, that, that's as bad as it gets. Uh, and, I, and I do wonder, looking at the band, the band's discography as a whole, if this was something that the record label was just like, yeah, don't put any cuss words on the album so that we can sell to the maximum amount of people. Well, I think the thing that was interesting sort of about that comment uh you know with them being more of a i'll say cleaner cut um there's at this point there's been no uh like everyone knows that basically the band was signed and kind of um uh, were destined to kind of be pushed by the label um i think in my chat that i did with uh oh i can't think of his name uh it really sucks that we're recording this and this is gonna go live because i was gonna describe <laughs> chat, real fast right? yeah no um <laughs> He's usually on to me. Uh, he does like Dave Ellison stuff. Can't think of his name. Tom Hazard. Um, Tom Hazard has kind of made comments, uh, you know, when working with uh, different labels and putting street teams together and so forth, that this band, you know, Dan had kind of talked about how weird it was that there were so many B-sides before this, this record came out and this band was known. And the theory kind of is, is that the label wanted to generate buzz because the band didn't really play out. They didn't really build their name the traditional way. So what they're trying to do so it's been alleged is kind of putting out music and make it seem like they've been around for a while and give them more credibility than just being like, hey, here's this first record and we're going to push the shit out of it because they're, it's good, first and foremost. But secondly, we think that it has something to offer in that space that you're not seeing. Whereas 
you know, your Jonathan Davises and all the people in Corn and Fred Durst and like all these people would eventually get on magazine covers and so forth and get on TRL. They didn't have what we would say are traditionally good looks. I think we can all agree that Linkin Park being a younger band by the time, you know, new metal, quote unquote, is kind of taking over the mainstream, that they didn't have the quote unquote kind of boy band look to it. Orgy was as close as you were kind of getting to a band that had aesthetics. And but then they were good. called Orgy. Right. So it's it's one of those where I think this takes a lot of the and I hate to say it like this, but takes a lot of the tropes that we were looking for. And this might have been one of the more homogenized versions that we were getting of like, let's see if we can make this thing be successful by having a band that had just happens to look good, writes really good songs and all those kind of things. And let's kind of give them a little bit more credibility so people will be will take it uh, as a band and not something that we're kind of forcing on them. So. I do think that this is an interesting record and they're an interesting band because I thought based on the presentation of One Step Closer that they were probably my age, you know, in high school, maybe a couple years older than me. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. Where I'm like, oh, wow, here's this really young band. I'm kind of a, a, identifying with them a little bit more. And, you know, maybe the lyrics says if you were to hear shut up when I'm talking to you and thinking that it's coming from a 28 year old, you're like, well, that seems a little cringy. But from an 18 to a 22 year old, maybe you're like, OK, I get that because that's how I feel. So I just think that that's part of, to me, something I've always thought about with this record is just kind of the presentation of the band. Yeah, and I must have been like, what, 15 or something at the time. And so obviously shut up when I'm talking to you is the least cringy thing in the entire world. It, it becomes it Was becomes it going your away entire a message. <laughs> yeah, like it's one of those. My mom told my mom came into my room and told me to turn the music down and I told her no. You know, shut up when I'm talking to you, you know, like it, it definitely um, plays into the supposed oppression you have as a middle age or as, as a middle America. <laughs> yeah, middle as a middle aged <laughs> man now myself. No, but uh, a middle school you know, age a middle, is the word you were looking for. A middle America disposable you know, teens suburban kid. It plays into that really, really, really well. Uh, it's it's almost it's almost like an irresistible drug. And then you throw in kind of speaking of irresistible. This record is filled with ear candy. There's nothing about it that sounds there's nothing about it that, that it sounds undigestible. You know, it's it's all very very smooth right down to the mixing. You know, even even with even with heavier songs, um like the opening riff of uh With You is probably the most aggressive moment on the entire record besides, you know, One Step Closer uh or even the breakdown in uh Runaway you know but like you've got like they're playing with you and it's like super heavy it's in your face it's the most corn like riff i've heard them play and i, I would say by myself is maybe got that one for but me but then it smooths out though by myself is very heavy yeah um but it's heavy for lincoln park and i think that's one of those things where it's like you hear by myself and you know if i hadn't heard by myself back in the day there's no way i would have ended up checking out stuff like you know converge later on that was like really noisy you know, and I know it's crazy to make that jump, but like this is the first time where I'm hearing, you know, feedback and noise as music, but it's done so digestibly. It's got this candy coating around it, you know, I, and that, that's the way I described kind of all the guitar I hear on this record is like it's got candy, a candy coating around it. And it might be good inside, but the outside's nice and sweet and easy for you to easy for you to get into. And I think that's why this record was as, as big as it was. So I want to put a pin on Dan's comment because that's something when we get further on, I definitely think we'll showcase because a lot of people, as we will say, I'm sure will say like, man, the band really changed. I would say yes, 
the sound may have quote unquote changed, but like Dan just said, and take keep in mind when we get there, they're really good at writing poppy, clean sounding things. So that's been like, we'll say that's been here from the jump. That's been a part of their sound. I yeah. want to put several pins in what he just said, because feedback being heard as music for the first time. Just wait till we talk about Nirvana eventually, because Dan used to listen to a shit ton of Nirvana. And I want to call out and encourage everybody to find all four versions of this album's songs that they can, that I'm aware of. We're going to talk about reanimation briefly, but this album, there's demos for this. There's a Hybrid Theory EP that has other versions of these songs. So this record had really been crowdsourced. How many different ways can Mike Shinoda mix these songs and release them to people and then decide which versions are the best? It's not impossible to find, and I encourage everybody to listen to it because some of that stuff probably makes sense when you're making a mainstream album, but there's some really cool shit that they took out. There's an entire bridge rap for Crawling that, to this day, Dan knows, I think is the superior version of that song. <laughs> but I think that's that's the difference of working with a big name producer and I think kind of almost the detriment of having a like two producers technically in the band between Mike and then what Johan does with a lot of the strings and samples and so forth is you can take a song in so many different directions. And if a lot of it started probably either with a very basic arrangement of an acoustic guitar or making a beat and then kind of doing something around it. The problem is you can add so many fucking layers and go in so many directions. And I know on the album we're going to talk about after reanimated, that was a problem they were having demoing songs and then writing them. But they were like, well, I kind of like how this goes this way, but like, do we take it that way? Or do we kind of go where it started? And I think that's kind of the problem. A good problem to have, I guess, is that, Linkin Park can write a song and they probably could do a ska version, a hip hop version, a indie version. Like they have those tools and that wealth of knowledge to pull from. But I also wonder at a, to a point, like if that makes it harder to focus on a song and just kind of let it be versus being like, well, I'm going to tinker with this and make it a little bit different, do it kind of something else to it. Yeah. And I think, you know, and, and to, to Joe's point about there being so many different versions, there's a version of hybrid theory that you can buy or you can stream on Spotify, uh, which is the 20th anniversary edition. And it has everything. It, it, if, if you're looking for a definitive origins of Linkin Park release, this is it. It is like a six disc compilation. And, and I'm going to I'm not going to lie in preparing up for this episode. I was like, I don't really need to listen to hybrid theory again, but I pulled a, I pulled this up anyway. And I. I went down the rabbit hole and I listened to all of it. I mean, it includes the entire, you know, the entire Hybrid Theory album, the entire Reanimation album, the entire uh, Hybrid Theory EP, and then all of the different mixes, uh, a bunch of live stuff. There's a lot of B-side rarities. There's there's so much. Does it have my chorus in there? Yes. Right, drops. Yeah, put the rhythm on the can, pavement. Can, Fuck yes. Yeah, you can pull that up. But uh, yeah, I, so like this record is exactly what I needed at the time. And I think it's what a lot of people needed at the time, uh, because, again, this was also a heavy band that you could actually show to your parents and then be like, well, you know, he, that young man seems very angry, but he's not saying cuss words. So I guess it's OK. You know, like it, <laughs> that, that that was just like the, the, the system of morality back in the day uh, of like, well, they're not saying all these words. And, you know, it's uh, it's not like that band Corn that released that awful song, Children of the Corn, you know, like 
<laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 these were very clean cut. And the only, if I have any negative at all, um, and this is coming purely later from life, because to, to, to say that I had any problem with hybrid theory when it came out at all uh, would be a lie. It was a perfect, it was a perfect record. Uh, and it's in a lot of ways, it still is. Um, even though it may not align with my particular criteria for a perfect record, from a sales standpoint and from a musical standpoint and the consistency standpoint, uh, it is a perfect record. It's completely flawless. And um, with a lot of the new metal bands that were out at the time, one of the biggest things about them is that they were very, it sounded like guys in a garage writing songs. It sounded raw. It sounded, it sounded in your face. Um, Linkin Park took kind of all of that away in the sense of every single song. Like they're, they're, I would say the only thing it's lacking in really is a lot of like sound dynamics as far as production goes where everything is leveled out at the same volume, which, you know, for 2000, that's pretty much a textbook example. And that's why a lot of the times I like going back and listening to some of the B-side versions of these songs because they do contain some of that rawness. Uh, there's a song called Part of Me on the Hybrid Theory EP, which is probably my favorite Linkin Park song from this era. And it wasn't even on the record. Um, High Voltage also being, being an incredible uh, song. I, I actually like some of the more mic-heavy songs. From the original, uh, from the original demos and stuff, and so yeah, it's uh, it's definitely awesome to just listen to the record, but absolutely uh, go back and listen to some of these demo versions. I think you're gonna find a lot to like. And now we can talk about reanimation. I mean, I, I guess. So in 2002, Hybrid Theory was like the biggest record ever. If you asked somebody that listened to the record label and listened to the radio. So we didn't get a new album by Linkin Park. We got Mike Shinoda playing with his MacBook and many of the currently popular lead vocalists of bands showing up to do remix versions of the Hybrid Theory songs. Is it worth listening to? Some of it is. Take a shot at it. You might like it. If you enjoy the early versions of the Hybrid Theory songs, you're going to like another version, maybe. But it was a bit of a put-off for me as a fan because I wanted new songs by the band. I didn't want a remix. And this is not the first time this is going to happen. Uh, so uh, stay tuned for 2004. Well, I think the thing that's interesting... Sorry, Dan. Uh, that's interesting about this and that I think a lot of people kind of forget is this is the beginning of the era of... Sorry, my chair slipping. Um, this is the beginning of the era of... I think labels and or bands realizing that they need to constantly have something out there uh, before fans will forget about them. This is where you started seeing like the U's put out like those B-sides records in between every record they were doing. And it came with the DVD that they, you know, showcasing the band on tour and so forth. And it was, you know, I, I kind of liken this to what Victory Records used to do, where they would constantly put out different versions of records. This one came with, you know, a live CD. This one comes with a DVD. This does this. A, it keeps your sales going. It keeps your band in the in the mentions and so forth. But for collectors, it also it's another thing that now you have to get to complete your discographies because people have CD collections at this point. I know. Shocking. Um, but it's one of those where this is in right in that sweet spot of bands doing things like this, I think, to a keep pushing records and to keep their name out there while they're able to write a record and kind of buy themselves more time before that thing of I haven't heard from this band in a while. What happened to them? And so I think a this band actually can pull off a record like this. I like the fact that because they have 
you know, Johan and, and Mike Shinoda, producer and basically people who can do whatever with sound, as we'll talk more on the first single for the next record. But this is a really cool way to kind of bridge new metal together. I mean, you have Jonathan Davis, you have like all the heavy hitters basically represented on this. There's, you know, Steph from the Deftones even. Um, so it's one of those where you're kind of, you know, they have a foot in what's popular and the scene that they're in, but they also still have a foot in the underground, you know, electronic and uh, hip hop. And again, as we go further on, it's when they kind of quote unquote deviate. I again feel like there's always points quote unquote, of authority um, where you can <laughs> see that basically they've always done these kind of things. They've always been unapologetically themselves. They've done whatever they've wanted to do. Um, so this is why we typically probably wouldn't talk about a record like this because we didn't with Candiria and so forth. This, I think, is important to hear because, A, like Dan said, it was reissued in the holy shit deluxe version of Hybrid Theory for the 20th anniversary. But this also, I think, sets up some stuff moving forward um, that we'll touch on as well. So I think it's a great record to check out. I think it is a one of the few instances where they really did different versions of the songs that everyone knows and loves from Hybrid Theory, but actually gives it a completely different spin, completely different lyrics at some points. Um, it was always funny watching people coming in when this record first came out and they start singing along to the song. I'm like, don't do that. And then the lyrics would change because they're not the same. And then someone would be like, oh, uh, you're like, I told you, you don't know these lyrics. <laughs> this. Yeah, this I, I actually really enjoyed this. And I think it's because I listened to um, I listened to Hybrid Theory so many times that it was cool to get kind of this this blended version of it. You know, where there, there's elements of it that you that you know, but then there's also stuff that you didn't know. And like at the time, unless you were like really big on like downloading songs off of like LimeWire or Kazaa or whatever, you didn't even More know fierce. about songs. Yeah, you didn't even know song. You didn't know about songs like My December or songs like High Voltage. And I think it was a very intentional choice for him to put those in because the band seems to enjoy those songs, those particular two B-sides. Uh, I think I think maybe this was one of those. They always wanted those to be on the album, but. You know, I can definitely tell by listening to Hybrid Theory on its own that it's, you know, they wouldn't have really fit anywhere without 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 messing up with the sequencing a little bit. So, like, I kind of appreciate that, um, that they that they were left off. But I think the band in a certain to a certain degree didn't want that to be the case. Uh, but, yeah, and, you know, once they sold a billion albums, I think everybody was like, yeah, OK, you can do what kind of do what you guys want. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and, you know, Joe, you wanted new songs, right? Actual new songs, yes. Actual new songs. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to be the record to do it for you. 2003, Meteora. Um, I remember buying this motherfucker day one. Um, Same. And, you know, Somewhere I Belong was... Because the other thing, that, and we haven't talked about this with this band is just how visually interesting the band was too. You know, all their videos from Hybrid Theory were really, really interesting. The fact that they made an animated video for um, Points of Authority, I think, uh, for the reanimated album, Somewhere I Belong looked massive. Um, you know, it was just the scope of it. It was beyond kind of what any of the other bands were doing in this scene. I would say, aside from... Korn was trying to do different stuff, but I feel like even, you know, a song like Got the Life with the Bullet and the technology being used with the CGI at the time was still crazy. It wasn't like what even Korn would kind of do, like on issues where like their videos felt bigger, like they had a big budget. Linkin Park was one of those first bands that like kind of reinvested their money back into, you know, their their videos and they were a big deal. They were, you know, number one on TRL and all that kind of stuff when that was still a thing. 
And it's one of those where, you know, the radio pushed the shit out of Somewhere I Belong. And it's a great song. Uh, I loved on the DVD of them showing, I think it was Chester playing these four chords. And then Mike's like, give me that for a second. Chops it into four, turns, like mixes the order up and then reverses it to get that kind of thing that starts the song. It's shit like that, like when you see how the band works or how they are able to create even something as simple as that, that is the beginning of a song. It's just really fucking interesting to see these are talented people through and through. And the fact that, you know, Mike or Johan basically does a lot of their videos. Like I said, I can't ever forget seeing the making of Somewhere I Belong and Johan had a monitor on his uh, DJ area. And so when they do those wide crane shots, you, I can't not ever see it now that he said something about it. Like, because someone's like, well, how are you directing? But you're in the shots. And he's like, oh, I have a thing on my stand so I can see it. And then, like, when, like I said, when they do those wide crane shots, he's like, oh, I wish you never would have said that because now I can't unsee it or green screen that <laughs> fucker out or something. But this uh, this record, like to talk about how hard the expectation was to exceed hybrid theory couldn't have been bigger. Um, if there was ever going to be a sophomore slump record, Lincoln Park were poised to have that be what happens to them. And again, fucking just home runs all across the board. Um, the fact that they pay so much attention to track track listing and the way that the album is presented, you know, the way forward starts into don't stay like and then kind of the way Don't Stay ends to where Somewhere I Belong kind of picks up. Like, there's just so many great ways that this album flows in, in and unto itself uh, and provides just a really great listening experience. I think the parts that have always worked, like the heavier guitars, they figured out how to make them more accessible. Like, you look at a song like <clears throat> Faint, that guitar riff is awesome and it's huge. Man, did they figure out a way to fucking pop that up and make even like their heavier songs like the shut up when I'm talking to you part on here is obviously the part from faint at the end of that and you know Chester screaming but it still sounds pop and it's just incredible to see I think Don Gilmore did both of these two records um and man this is just again what a fucking great record um top to bottom all the singles hit and I mean when you look at these records and see stars next to almost every fucking song as being the, the most popular. <laughs> it's like, Jesus Christ, what other band can you say? Like, yeah, everything they put out on both records, the best songs on those records. Yeah, and I think the biggest question anybody has when a band puts out a record like Hybrid Theory, and even even when Reanimation came out, people were like, oh, this is the new record, so they just they can't do this again. They're, they're trying to, you know, extend the life of these songs. You know, me and my, me and my dumb friends, you know, had conversations like that all the time. But this is this is an interesting thought of like if a, if your favorite baseball team wins the World Series, and the next year they're like you're like oh you think they can do it again you know most of the time probably not <laughs> you know but uh, but but they've they've done it here and I think part of the reason is is that they they didn't really change their strategy at all <laughs> you know they 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 literally executed the same plan again uh, in the sense that like they this record is very cosmetically the same record as hybrid theory uh i mean except it has a forward intro track but like honestly pushing me away and numb are almost the same song to me <laughs> you know especially as album close like and it's not that they're the same song but like the it's just like yes this is what the lincoln park album closer sounds like you know this is uh the, you know this is you you've, you've got um you've got a song you know you you've got a song like somewhere i belong 
which I think kind of reminds me a little bit more of like almost like a mix of crawling and um, yeah, I don't know, like with you. Like, I don't know. There, there's they have the, the newer versions of basically the songs you already yes. know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. Like they're they're much more uh, some of the, I think that these songs do have a little bit of a different vibe, like from the atmosphere perspective, but it's still very much the same band. You could you could you could trick me. You could you could burn both of these albums to a CD, which I have. Um, and you have a solid hour of listening, and and you might think that oh man, that was a really great album. You know, it, it all they, it all fits so cohesively together, and it's got a lot of the same sound dynamic problems that I had with Hybrid Theory. That everything is is distinctly one volume. It's throughout. the early two thousands. That's what you got. I do feel like Mike Shinoda kind of owns this record more though. Uh, On Hybrid Theory, it was almost a little bit more Chester. This one, you get a little bit more Mike. Well, I feel Um, like, sorry. And we haven't really talked about that. Uh, We haven't really talked about that on the record or on the, on the episode so far. What do we, what do we think about Mike Shinoda as a rapper? I think it sounds fine. I don't listen to enough hip hop to give you a definitive stance on Mike Shinoda's ability as a hip hop artist as a lyricist, I think he's just there doing what he does. I don't have enough source material. I have a lot, but I don't have enough. John, I'm going to lean on you to put up a top 10 list and tell you where Mike Shinoda fits in. I just think what he does here works really well for what Linkin Park is. And I think his solo stuff is very entertaining to listen to. Um, well, with John being our resident uh, hip hop expert, how do you think Mike Shinoda stacks up? Um, so here's kind of the hard part, you know, like I was saying earlier about hybrid theory and, and feeling like it's not homogenized, but it's basically when you're catering to that wide of a demographic, you have to you're probably going to find the, the suburban kids who don't really know fucking anything about hip hop. And to them, Mike Shinoda is like one of the best rappers. It would be like someone from being a huge corn fan be like, well, Fieldy's the best bass player there ever is. And it's like, no, that's really an inaccurate statement. Right. Um, Les Claypool is staring at you angrily right now. Les Claypool or Jaco Pistorius or, I mean, shit, even Cliff Burton. Like, I mean, there's countless other better bass players flee. Um, But it's one of those where for compared against his contemporaries in this scene, I would say Mike is probably one of the better ones. He feels more natural with what he does. And I think it's because he's also a songwriter and a producer. So he's able to kind of be able to ride uh, things. And that's what I think the reanimated record really showed since it, I feel that was very Mike heavy, uh, bringing more of the hip hop electronic influence in. And I think, I think Mike is pretty serviceable for what he does. Is he the best? No, um, there is something I've kind of been trying to figure out for a little while You know, you look at mainstream, quote unquote, rappers like a Pitbull, like a, I mean, to a degree now, I would say Ja Rule is one of those people. But there becomes this thing where when you compare it to what we as hip hop fans would say are like some of the best, I wouldn't even put Mike like in the top hundred, probably. I could think of so many other people who are better from a lyrical standpoint and have better cadence, rhythm, whatever than Mike does for what this is. It works just fine. And I think if you were to put real rap over these things, I think it would probably lessen its its wide casting net because people would be like, oh, kind of off put by that because I don't listen to more technical, more um, 
you know, I'm not listening to someone like Nas who's going to tell you some real shit on a fucking record or DMX or, you know, any of these people. One of the people they do end up working with, Jay-Z, which is why I was so shocked that that worked as well as it did. Um, but that is more of a vehicle for Jay-Z, and we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. Yep, we're about to talk about that. Is it fair to say Mike Shinoda is more of an MC than an actual yeah. hip-hop artist? Because he shifts in these early albums from MC to hype man for Chester. And I don't know that I've ever seen that scenario where I'm, I'm going to become hype man for lead singer. Have you, have you, did you either of you guys see the band at this point on like at this point moving forward or anything? Seen them live a few times, seen a lot of performances, but not enough to tell you that I've seen a definitive performance of Linkin Park. Dan? Yeah, I mean, I've seen him. I've seen him on a couple of festivals. Okay, you know, but for the most part, um, it was mostly in the uh, in the Hybrid Theory uh, album or tour cycle. So the interesting thing and the reason I brought that up is, you know, Joe mentioned Reverb, and I missed the fuck out of that show, and I bought a bootleg CD of the Stain set from that show um, when the internet we'll first talk started. after the show, John. I've got some VHS tapes. I think I still do somewhere, but. Uh, it's one of those things where around Hybrid Theory, Mike just seemed like the rapper guy. You know, he was like S.A. from 311. He was just there and you're kind of like, what do you do other than perform marginally on good songs? Turns out everything. So that's the thing is by the time <laughs> Hybrid Theory comes out and you or I'm sorry, by the time Reanimated and then really uh, Meteora comes out. And when you start seeing the band live, you see Mike playing keyboards, you see him playing guitar, you see that he is this ancillary musician that's really kind of able to pull all these pieces together and really fulfill the band's sound in a way that you weren't aware of uh, on Hybrid Theory. And even in the live performances, Mike was just the other guy on stage with Chester. And you're like, oh, you're a two, two front man kind of a band. And that couldn't really have been further from the truth. So that's why I think it's so interesting if you caught the band moving forward, because you see Mike basically playing a plethora of instruments throughout the whole thing. And he's not really as much of a background person as you thought he was initially. And to me, that was really interesting to kind of see and, and see progress over the touring cycle and so forth of the band. Well, before we talk about Collision Course for a second, I want to talk about Chester's presentation at this point. There are songs that heavily feature Chester in the discography up to this point. But I do think that Breaking the Habit is the first time it was consciously made aware that Chester could just do it by himself. And that's a weird song because it's a single from Linkin Park. It's essentially a Mr. Han groove and Chester performing a very, very deep set of lyrics. But then you talked about videos earlier, John. Linkin Park does anime. It's fucking great. I love it. And everybody should go check it out if you haven't seen it. But this was the first conscious confirmation of what me and Dan and everybody else talked about back in the day. Well, wouldn't it be great if Chester just did his own thing with the band? Well, we're not far away from that. And I don't know if that was a conscious decision or if it was truly just two lyricists writing songs and wherever the vocals fit, that's where they fit. And this is one of those examples where all Chester is not a bad thing. Collision Course. Okay, so... Did you uh, want a remix album of Linkin Park and Jay-Z mashed up? I mean, it's not what I wanted, but, I mean, it was fine. Uh, I think this is... And this is kind of what I was getting at whenever we were talking about how do we feel about Mike Shinoda, or Mike Shinoda as a rapper, and then you put him next to a rapper that is 
on a much higher Keep echelon. It's, it's up here somewhere. Yeah, dude. like than what you're. You know, it looks like you know the skybox keeps be, going. It would be a good. It would be a good stocks day, right? To see that sort of uh, increase in quality. And so I think, in my opinion, it kind of takes away from that a little bit for me, because when you're listening to it, like I've heard these Lincoln Park songs, so I'm kind of here more for the Jay Z stuff, right? You know, and I and I that that's that's the pervading feeling I had when I was listening to that to that uh, album or EP or whatever it was. It was more of a mixture of an EP DVD, uh, but I just kind of felt like it was not as good as Reanimation was as far as as far as the song chopping. I mean, the songs that they did do, but it was it was less content, I guess. And again, I just kind of didn't I didn't really connect with it. I think the way that maybe people that were more into hip hop would have connected with it. In hindsight. It's a really good mashup album. And Dan will be the first person to tell you how big mashups were becoming in 2004. This might be the only mainstream consensual mashup that exists. I can't think of another one. And I hated it in 2004. Not because it's bad, because I didn't want another Linkin Park remix album. And then a few years later, when I actually sat down and listened to it for what it was, I realized how fucking great it was because I listened to Jay-Z in the past. I don't consistently listen to him today. So to hear two very distinct sets of songs get thrown together in different ways, I actually would take more of this right now. If Linkin Park and Jay-Z did a mashup every 10 years, I would buy that because it's really fucking good. And the behind-the-scenes documentary is worth a watch to see how they did it. Spoilers, Mike Shinoda did a shit ton on that one. I think the thing for me that that kind of showcases a, a handful of things, really. First of all, you had arguably the biggest person in hip-hop with Jay-Z um, and one of the biggest rock bands in Linkin Park. MTV was resurrecting so many different things to create visual content, you know, whether it was... Um, bringing back Unplugged at that point. You know, Stained had just kind of dropped uh, the Break the Cycle Dysfunction uh, Unplugged thing that they did. Um, MTV was kind of really trying to merge all the people together in weird, interesting ways. You know, you were seeing a lot of those MTV icons at that time where it was, we're celebrating this artist and then people from all spectrums of rock, metal, hip hop, whatever, were covering songs uh, by these artists, you know? And John, you're so right. 2004 was like oversaturate the movie, right? Like just constantly pile on. That's yeah. why it was so fucking annoying. So with this mashup, I feel like it served Jay-Z more than it did Linkin Park because I feel like they weren't really a showcase. Like almost everything is bending to Jay-Z having, you know, his lyrics on something versus let's take a Jay-Z song. I think they kind of did it with 99 problems, if I'm not mistaken, but like where they kind of flipped that on its head. But I feel like I would have liked to have seen more Jay-Z stuff done with Linkin Park stuff. And it felt like they didn't either have the time to fully do that as much where it was like, hey, it's a little bit easier for us to find a song, maybe manipulate the BPM so you can do your song over ours um, versus us having reconstructing your shit and trying to put our things on it. Um, it felt very homogenized and, and suburban when I, I saw it. Like, I remember a lot of white people being there. I mean, I'm white, so I mean, I know that's a, a weird statement to make, but I just remember being like... And I was one of them. Yeah, but it's like, not only am I, <laughs> not only am I a client, but I'm the president. But... uh. It was one of those things to me where it 
it didn't feel like it did much to help Jay-Z. I mean, I don't know that many people saw that and then go, oh man, that dude's really cool. I'm gonna go buy, you know, Hard Knock Life. I'm gonna go buy Volume One. I'm gonna go buy Reasonable Doubt. I'm gonna go check out that MCV Unplugged to his when it comes out here pretty soon. I didn't feel like that did anything for either of them, really. It just was a, a weird thing that exists. But I think it was also off of, and I might have my ear wrong, but I think that was also an idea that MTV stole because the Danger Mouse White uh, Gray album had just come out. Uh, where Danger Mouse had done the Jay-Z uh, Black album and mixed the White album by the Beatles. And there we go. So they were like, we can't do that, but let's try to do a mainstream version of that where we can profit off of it because now we have the rights to do so. Um, so it just kind of felt like a very exploited, exploitive uh, avenue for me. Uh, I don't really feel like it did anything to really help either person. It just was a thing. Um, it's not bad. It's not great. It just it is to me. Are right, you guys ready to talk about some real records? Sure. 2007 right. minutes to midnight. So I'm not going to lie to you guys. I The first time I heard this record, I listened to the first two songs and then I never listened to it again. Uh, shame and uh, because that was a mistake i understand that it was 2007 but like i i i would have been fine with hybrid theory part two you already have that it's called meteor i'm sorry hybrid theory part three you know to end <laughs> off the trilogy so to speak and uh obviously the band recognized more so probably than i did that uh you know they can't just uh they can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and they can't just remix it and then put that out or mash it up with somebody else and put that out. Uh, this is the first Linkin Park album where I feel like they actually start sounding like an actual band. You know how we talked about on the first two records, how it all seemed very, um, very polished, very, very studioed up. And the band did sound very good live. I'm not saying that it's not that they couldn't pull off that material because they obviously could. But uh, this is where they kind of start sounding more like a house band, like a like a house party band <laughs> to a certain degree. And uh, I can't say I loved that because it just wasn't heavy. Like it, they, they come off that they've, they've definitely decided that they're going to cut the metal out of what they do and that they're going to basically be a rock band at this point. Correct you know? my memory, please. There's really only one hip hop section on this album. For the most part. Yeah, I mean. So they're going they're going for more of a rock band sound. They're not really like playing punk. I know somebody was like, oh, they're just trying to play punk. I don't think that's it either. Uh, I think this is just more of like a... Does Rick Rubin we, we, produce punk bands? We want to be a positive... Or not I positive, can see why they said we, that then. <laughs> okay. Okay. What I'm trying to say is that they've decided to scale back and sound more like a band would sound if they were just kind of playing somewhere at a house show, at a house party something like that and so and i mean bleed it out i think the i think the actual video for bleed it out is them at a house party <laughs> did they decide or did rick rubin just produce this album i don't know what rick rubin decided or didn't decide on this record but what i do know is that this is not the lincoln park that i signed up for and i remember being really upset about that uh when i was younger i can say after listening to it again like revisiting it revisiting it for this uh, I actually had a lot of appreciation for how well they were able to leave enough breadcrumbs of what they used to be in their sound while kind of moving on to explore much different, uh, much different dynamics in their sound. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, Bleed It Out's the only time I can think of where you hear Mike distinctly. He uh, does melodic vocalist. vocals on a couple songs, but this is the only hip hop. Yeah. So 
with that being said, I think that this record is actually a really good transition for them. Because if you listen to this and decide it's not for you, uh, that's probably a good place to a good stepping off point for you. Uh, but if you if you like Chester's voice and you like um, you like the more melodic side of the band, not that everything they have done before hasn't been hyper melodic because it has, but um, but in comparison to the old albums, uh, this is this is a step down in the heaviness department, uh, which is to be expected because you know I think by 2007 you don't want to be a band from the early 2000s that's still playing new metal unabashedly, you know? And so they, they transitioned out of that, I think, really, really well. This record's more explicit than what they'd released, at least as far as their mainline albums go, than anything they'd done before. Um, it's the first, I think, they had a parental advisory sticker on it. And um, they were a little bit more grown up. This is the grown up. This is the matured Linkin Park. Uh, so it makes sense that over time, some of that angst might have gone away, you know? I think I think the angstiest song probably is given up like out of everything because uh, Chester that that one probably has like the most kind of punky sound to it. Um, but Chester leads that one 100 percent and he does it with a totally different candor than he than he normally would. So, again, if you're just here for Chester's voice, you're going to love this record. Um, but it wasn't enough for me. But I have to say, like, if I had to pick between this record and the next one, I probably would pick this one every time. <laughs> I know this is probably where a lot of people start the divide on whether they fell off, quote unquote, on this album, or if you are a fan who embraced what the band was doing um, on this record and kind of moving forward. Um, Of note, like I was saying earlier, this is the first record they did without Don Gilmore. So I was kind of wondering and listening to this and even when the record came out, wondering how much he was responsible for some of the band's overall sound that we were hearing. Um, Is this possibly more of a reflection of Rick Rubin doing what he does, which is kind of pushing some bands towards greatness or pushing them into like weird territories like uh, that, that sometimes alienate their fans. Like, you know, I'm kind of thinking of what he did when, you know, he got his hands on Slipknot for volume three. It was definitely not what anyone was expecting after seeing what Ross did on, you know, the first Slipknot record in, in Iowa. You get volume three. And I remember people being equally as shocked as they were for this one. So it's like Rick kind of has this this penchant for making bands sound really good and writing cohesive material together. Um, But it's kind of a thing of like, but at what expense does he maybe drive the sound that makes that everyone loves from a band drives them away from that? Um, I don't hate this record. I think I think this is still the band that you love from the first two records, but it's a bit more refined. Um, I think songs like Give It Up, Bleed It Out, No More Sorrow, they bring more of that straightforward aggression that we've seen on the other albums. But I'm more into how they expanded their softer side. Uh, Leave Out All the Rest always gets repeated listens for me when I listen to this record. Shadow of the Day, Valentine's Day really showcase how well the band can write more stripped down material that really showcases Chester's like melodic side that we hadn't really seen as much. Um, this really feels like this really makes me wonder, you know, with Rick Rubin being one of those guys who sits down with the band and really kind of goes like, OK, what are you trying to do? What do you do? Like these kind of things from just watching them on all these documentaries. Coincidentally, even the one that with uh, Jay-Z for his last at the time, last record. Um, but it's one of those things where I wonder if he went to Mike and was like, yes, you add a really interesting dynamic. But I think you add more of an interesting dynamic being more part of the band, being someone who's kind of writing more and letting creating a vehicle for Chester. I think we have such something unique with Chester in his voice. Like his screams sound like no one's I've ever heard. I swear if you didn't tell me that that was if I'd never seen a video of him recording vocals, I'd be like he triple tracks these because you can hear 
like a mid-level kind of a higher pitch and like a lower frequency but that's just how his fucking voice is like it's joplin effect man really unique in that way like i've never heard a vocalist sound like chester and this record i think is really a great vehicle for all things that chester has done is it maybe what you wanted if you were looking for hybrid theory three no but i think like dan said and i don't think this can actually be understated this was probably a band looking to get away from the new metal tag because this is when everyone was trying to get away from that and distance themselves as far as they could away from that Linkin Park was big enough at this point and had proven that they could do so many different things. I don't think they had anything left to prove in that space, and they kind of wanted to challenge themselves to be more of a band and write something that maybe would have more of a lasting impact uh, than what we have seen from like Hybrid Theory and so forth. And I think, you know, songs like Leave Out All the Rest and Shadow of the Day and, you know, what I've done, I think culturally will have more of a significant impact that and longer lasting effect because i think people will come back to these records and go wow i really missed out on some really good songs good songwriting the hype around rick rubin at the time (laughs) was that he revitalizes bands who are on their way down i've never thought that was accurate just because he released the american records with johnny cash and they sounded amazing because Johnny Cash didn't need a lot of help to sound like Johnny Cash and worked with Metallica on Death Magnetic. Okay, dude can strip a band down. He can strip down an artist. I think what Rick Rubin does is force a band to be themselves. Because you listen to the last Black Sabbath album with Ozzy Osbourne on vocals, it sounds like Black Sabbath. You listen to Minutes to Midnight, it sounds like Linkin Park doesn't have anybody helping them. And now they have to write interesting songs with meaningful lyrics. And we're not going to give you your MacBook, Mike, to get that beat perfectly tweaked. I wonder, looking back on everything, did Rick recognize that, yeah, the hip-hop stuff that Mike was doing was cool, but did he recognize that Chester had something to say? And that's why he's such a focus on this album? I feel like maybe Executioners, and I know that, or uh, Fort Minor, and I know that record came well before this. I feel like that was maybe a way for him to kind of satiate that itch to get that out. I don't know. I mean, I think the thing that's... It's a good album, by the way. Especially at this point. I I saw the band on on this album cycle because they did Project Revolution shortly thereafter, um, which was an amazing festival, and I wish they would have continued with it because it really showcased so many... Like, I mean, seeing Seosin, seeing him... uh, fucking placebo like you know julian k and like seeing so many different kinds of bands uh was and you know my chemical romance getting to do black parade like i don't think i'll i've never had seen them and i probably never will ever again but to see them do a full black parade set and then lincoln park comes out and you're like well i don't know how you're topping that and then they come out with their giant fucking thing and basically play you know most of hybrid theory and meteora and a good half of this (laughs) and you're like oh that's how that's how you're gonna do this it's gonna be great and like Sometimes like with these records that uh, people don't like on the record, when you see them in conjunction in a set list against the stuff you do like, you're like, oh, all right, I, I do kind of like that song a little bit more now that I heard it against something else. And even when seeing these songs live, like, you know, they did differing versions of them. And even that kind of is still going back to Dan's like, I've never seen a band with so many B-sides. I've never seen a band that plays <laughs> shit differently live where you're like, 
all right, man, like what fucking version of this song is this? Am I getting like a stripped down version? Am I getting a full band version? Am I getting an acapella version? Am I getting a remix version? Like I have no fucking idea. And I feel like that's the fun of Linkin Park too, is that they are able to transition into whatever they want to be. This is them growing up and trying to be more of a serious adult band that sings about real shit. And I'm kind of here for it. And I hope it gets better. Um, but I, I yeah, yeah. So <laughs> let's uh, <laughs> let, let's just let's just rip the scab off. Uh, Minutes to Midnight was fine. I mean, it was it, it was what the band needed to do. All that stuff. It's more mature. I'm here for it lyrically. I'm not here for it musically. Really, it's fine. Also, Transformers. You know, lots of lots of Transformers. Uh, they were the Transformers uh, in-house band <laughs> at the time. So. <laughs> You know, you get what I've done at the end of the Transformers movie and you're like, okay, wow, all right, cool. Back when that uh, was still a thing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, then, they, then they just take it into really, really, really weird territory. 2010, A Thousand Sons. Okay, so I'm going to do my best here. <laughs> okay. All right, that was a great opinion. Thank great you. Great song yeah. by Madonna, by the way. I, okay, this record is... Look, it's just not very good. Okay, uh, I think that one of the biggest things is that it, I and I and I say that because I want it to be good because I like kind of the idea. I'm I'm kind of a sucker for concept records, and I'm kind of I'm kind of here for a narrative, you know, and all of that. I think it's weird that in you know I I, I think I think the theme is weird. I think it's weird to put a record out uh, about nuclear destruction in 2010. <laughs> just and, and not not because like maybe they didn't care about it it's just that they've never talked about being afraid of nuclear destruction on any of their other material and the last record was so mature me- lyrically you, you know so so to have this this kind of over bloated concept record thrown in here it seems a little bit on the nose for me and i think it's i think it's even further an expression of them being like look at how artsy and creative we actually are right because we we're gonna we're gonna do the Lincoln Park concept record, but we're still we're more the band that put out Minutes to Midnight than we are the band that put out Meteora, right? So they do a lot of very interesting stuff on this record, and I like some of it. Um, I like kind of I like I, I like hearing Mike do like you know some rapping over some like weird tribal drums and like like that sort of stuff. I think is cool. But I think as a whole, you know, you, you, they're throwing sound samples in to give you a certain vibe for, you know, nuclear destruction. But then I don't think that the songs all met. Like, it's obvious that the songs, like the batch of songs that they wrote for this were not necessarily tied to the concept. So it loses its, it loses its impact for me because, like, you'll have a super, super so- pretty, pretty song that's supposed to be about, like, you know, the sins of our fathers and you know like like all of this stuff and it, it's like it's like super heavy-handed material over music that sounds like they're like okay we just need some music for this part and it just doesn't really seem put together well for me i've listened to a lot of concept records and there's not enough there's not enough tying into what the point is and i also wonder if a band like lincoln park really needs a concept record like i feel like they could have wrote a song about or two or three songs about nuclear destruction and then been like yeah here we go this is what we think about nuclear destruction it's just it's just weird to me it's a, it's an oddity it almost doesn't even sound like a lincoln park album i mean yeah you can pick out chester and mike but the, the band's musical identity really isn't here this almost and this is gonna be a weird poll that i just came up with this almost feels like what Maroon 5 has turned into, where you're like, oh, you were a band. Now you're just a vehicle for 
your vocalist and somebody else. Do you are you even a band that like writes all your music or do, are you just now here's your shit fucking sing over it. Now you're that's that's what we're putting out is this thing. Uh, I know that's a very weird pull, but like if you ever remember how uh, Maroon 5 started, they were a full band. Now I think it's just Adam Levine and producers. Well, how many <laughs> bands can you name, John, that get really big that become soundscapes with vocalists and not bands playing songs? Well, I think so. I mean, I know we've talked about this on different discographies and you guys have as well. I think the thing that like is always interesting is learning when you start learning about your favorite bands and how their inner workings work. You know, I think, you know, I think I've made the comment several times that Seven Dust is a weird anomaly. Like they have so many great parts and you would think Lejean is an amazing lyricist. And then you find out like dude's written like one song that it's Clint, it's Morgan, it's John. It's like pretty much everybody else writing the music and the lyrics for Lejean and it sounds good. But that's almost a thing where it's like, that's the working relationship with that band. And if that's what works, that's what works. And I think the thing that's really unique about this band is you have Chester. And I know obviously at this point, you know, he went and did stuff. I think by this point had done uh, this Stone Temple Pilots thing. He had started up uh, Dead by Sunrise um, with the, the orgy dudes. And, you know, like there's there's offshoot bands now for everybody, basically. But I start to wonder when you have someone as prolific as Mike Shinoda is, does it sort of become a thing of like, I'm trying to show what I can do in my main thing so I can start getting business in other avenues and other lanes. And I'm definitely going to touch on that on that last record. But um, I would say for me, this is this is just a weird fucking record. I mean, the intros or whatever the fuck those are uh, that start the record, the record between the Requiem, the Requiem and the Radiance, which is not sadly the uh, the It Dies Today version. Um, almost give me. <laughs> a bit of like bring me the horizon vibes from what they did on some what they would go to do on some paternal but it's like this is where that sound starts and it's rough around the edges and bring me basically perfected the concept on some paternal uh and the sound overall this is just a hard record to get going for me like you're five songs in and you really only have two real songs and those two songs don't really seem to be cohesive where we have praised this band three four even with the you know remix records of really having a fine-tuned sound and curating a vibe and just everything seems like it's perfectly placed you know no, like no fat basically on the bone and this feels like a like certain people in the band worked on songs and then other people worked on other ones and then they're like hey um i don't know i mean look at the song like uh the industrial kind of sounding blackout song like which feels like chester was kind of doing that and he brought like this song and then it was like oh okay and then we get kind of what feels like at times to me or Fort Minor leftovers uh, at times where it's like, wasn't good enough for that. I don't know what this record is. Maybe it fits this weird, like toxic, not toxic Holocaust, <laughs> nuclear Holocaust uh, kind of vibe or whatever. There's glimpses of stuff that I think could be cool. You know, Dan mentioned the song Wretches and Kings and like that could have been really fucking cool. Unfortunately, it didn't have the huge guitars. I feel like that would have really made it stand out against that Regatron vibe that they were using. This just largely feels like pieces like this is what I would imagine a B-sides or a remix album to sound like where it's not fully fleshed out and you understand why. And that's really a bummer that you're basically following the three records that you did where even on the last one, if you weren't necessarily a fan of it, you kind of were like, OK, like, can they get to a way where they can 
hybrid theory Meteora Meteora kind of it up where it's like really perfected in this new era of what the band's going to be. And I feel like they just fell largely flat on their faces on this one, which is really sad. Yeah, it's not their finest hour. And I, I appreciate, though, that, you know, even during this point in their career where they're not putting out like great new albums or this one specifically, this is the only one that I think is like really kind of terrible. But um, I think it's one of the biggest missteps. But Linkin Park still has enough star power <laughs> at this point yeah. where, you know, if you show up, if you show up and see Linkin Park, yeah, they might play a couple of songs off of this beer album. Songs. Huh? The beer song. Right. Yeah. It's off our new record, A Thousand Sons. Cool. I'm going to get a beer yeah. and going to pee. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But then, you know, you're still going to get back there with your beer to hear him play One Step Closer and hear him play Bleed It Out and hear him play all these songs that you're there to hear them play. Can um, we just listen to Real Big Fish instead? No. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, it does. Um, beer song. All right. So I think that I think we've all Joe. Joe, did you speak on this one at all? I, I don't I have anything to say about like this one. This, this sounds like we had a bunch of shit left over from Fort Minor, and we were trying to come up with something big, but it just doesn't work. I don't know what motivation led Lincoln Park to put out a concept album of remixes in 2010. But we mentioned it earlier that remixes are kind of their thing, and reanimation is not going to be the last time they put out a remix album, but it is going to be the last time we talk about it. This just does not hit the way that Linkin Park should hit for me. But I want to think that the band was on board with this idea, and it wasn't just a Mike Shinona project that featured Chester Bennington. I mean, fair enough. It's, yeah. Are we ready to move on? I don't have anything yep. else to say. That's yeah, let's move on. Not just wallowing. 2012. Living things. This is really interesting to me. Because even though I think this, again, is still more the Minutes to Midnight band, this isn't necessarily the uh, Thousand Suns band. <laughs> this is where the electronic elements start creeping their way back in more prominently. The hip-hop influence starts creeping its way back in. This is a very interesting transitional record where they're starting to rediscover themselves. And this is where they start the transition into becoming Linkin Park again, as they would be more traditionally known. Uh, and it's 2012, it's, so we have to go full party rock. Well, it's still not like, it's not Meteora. It's not hybrid theory, <laughs> you know. Um, and I know I, it, we're such meatheads sometimes where it's like, yeah, go back to the heaviest material and compare everything to that. I know I know that's kind of a trope of mine at this point. But, uh, but I really do sincerely appreciate there being much more musical variety and cohesion, too, to the actual song. We're, they're back to making actual songs and not just, like, extended introductions <laughs> and, and sound clips and trying to sell us on something. And this record actually ended up producing probably, you know, this late in their career produced one of their biggest singles, uh, Castle of Glass, um, which I think is um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite Linkin Park songs. And it's actually so good that it almost outshines the rest of the record <laughs> because you have a powerhouse single like this. Um, you have this powerhouse single like this that absolutely is um, what they needed to get kind of back into the limelight and to have another big, huge song to debut in a live show. It helps that it starts off with the Mr. Han drum loop. You know that yes. sound when Mr. Han shows up at the start of the song and it's going to get big and the band is going to drop into a huge riff. Well, they don't do that this time, but it gets you hyped the same way. I think this record is that transitional record 
And there's no other way to say it, guys. It just sounds better. It sounds like the production that makes Linkin Park sound good is here on this record. That's been missing for the past two. I like Rick Rubin. I like what he does. I love the American recordings. But thinning out Linkin Park is not something I needed. You can strip Linkin Park down all you want, but I didn't need them to sound like a basic punk band. Linkin Park gets to sound like this. And even though this is lacking the heaviness of the first two albums, I feel like this has the same amount of intensity in the intent. They're wanting us to feel these songs like we felt the old ones. It just came out 10 to 12 years later. So this might be a weird comment to make, but I've always felt like in as much as this feels like a return to the band's previous sound, I felt like maybe this is more aligned with reanimation than, say, Meteora or Hybrid Theory, with an emphasis on the electronic hip hop side. More of the ambient style vocals uh, from Chester versus his more aggressive ones. Overall, this collection feels largely like a B-sides from Minutes to Midnight to me more than brand new songs. There were rumors that the band had written most of an album going into the beginning of Minutes to Midnight, you know, the recording process of that, and that they scrapped and rewrote what we ended up getting. So maybe this is some of those ideas. Um, for me, this feels at least more like a bit of a return to form, but doesn't still quite hit like the hit the mark of the previous albums, even compared to Minutes to Midnight. This would have been more of a, a better transitional record after Meteora to me to get to Minutes to Midnight. Like if we were talking like a progression, this feels like it should have been slotted in the Minutes to Midnight section. And then Minutes to Midnight would have followed because, hey, we figured out how to how to perfect this style that we were working on. Thousand Steps really is just the outlier in the whole discography. Like I, it doesn't belong anywhere like the, it just it just is. It exists. <laughs> and I don't know. I almost wish they take it away and then try to redo it and be like, you know what? You get a mulligan on this one. Uh, take it out of your discography, rework those songs, make them better, and then we put it out down the road and uh, we'll uh, we'll enjoy it then. Or they fought for that. You know, they're a band that regularly seems to fight for their B-sides, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I guess. No. <laughs> no, I thought this was fine. Yeah. Guess moving on. 2014, The Hunting Party. Oh, man, The Hunting Party. So this is this is probably the record. And I know I've heard a lot of longtime fans, you know, have told me over the years. It's like, yeah, just ignore some of the other records, but definitely listen to Hunting Party because this is Linkin Park back in their truest form. And while I don't agree with that 100 percent, I do think that at some point they were like, yeah, I really just want to like play Have some fun, play some more mosh worthy tracks. You know, I, I, I want to play some more mosh worthy songs and, and, and bang my head a little bit more and, and kind of get into it. You know, maybe they're missing the mosh pits of the old days or or whatever. So what you get is you get a sizable you get a sizable guitar crunch. You know, out of some of these songs, you get more back and forth between Chester and Mike like we'd had kind of in the old days. But for the most part, it's not the facsimile that I think it's advertised to be. I think it's really it's still the minutes to midnight Linkin Park, but they're at least like they're acknowledging that maybe this is what their fans want or maybe it's just what they wanted. I don't know. Like, uh, I think for the most part, this is the most enjoyable album from their later career. But it's still like it doesn't have that polished perfection that the first two records had. So because I feel like Hunting Party, everybody's like, oh, it's so great. It's so great. It's so great. It's a return to form. 
But had this record come out right after Meteora, everybody would have been like, this is the bad one. You know what I mean? Like, it would have been, everybody would have been like, oh, it's terrible. You know, it's kind of like, you know, whenever you are doing something that somebody really likes, and then you stop doing that for an extended period of time, and then you come back and start doing it again, and everybody's just happy that it's similar or that it's close. Um, like I said, I, li I like the hunting party. I think it's a good, I think it's a good record. I think it's, I think it's heavy where it needs to be heavy. I think it has a little bit more depth, but it is still kind of missing some of that. Um, I don't know. I don't. I can't put my finger on what it was about those first two records. Maybe it was just something that you could only accomplish in the early 2000s. But uh, you know, there's a little bit more of that modern rock, contemporary, alternative rock sound in here still that they kind of really latched onto. And so I still hear a lot of that, and it's still kind of a turnoff for me personally. I don't think it's bad. I think it's quite enjoyable, but it's not the best that they've put out. It's a record by Linkin Park that has heavier sounding guitars. I don't know if it's anything more than that. We went from having this very solid sound to stripping that sound down so much that we started adding in pieces that we knew were missing. The last record was mainly the electronics. So now you've got the drums and the guitars pulled forward. I hate to say it, most people don't pay attention when Mr. Han is the guy at the front. Cure for the Itch, I can't count how many people skip that track. They're wrong, but they do it. So Linkin Park needs that rock sound. And spoilers, I don't think Linkin Park is really a new metal band. I think they're a hybrid band. I think they were quite literal <laughs> when they called their shit hybrid theory. So it's a rock band. Yes, you have to have the drums, the guitars, and the bass pulled forward to be a fucking rock band. Yeah, it looked like you had something to say. No, I mean, I agree. Uh, I don't know. I've, I've, I've said my piece on it, really. It's just that I think at this point, especially like how, where I had gone musically, you know, between 2000 <laughs> and 2014, you know, uh, it's hard for me. It was hard for me to kind of go back and listen to this and get into the mindset that I needed to be in to really appreciate it. But when it's just a different version, uh, like like an alternate version of, of the band that I got into, it's hard for me to really grasp onto it, even though I do think that from a, from a music critic perspective, sure, there's more maturity in the songwriting. There's definitely more maturity in the lyrics. I think that's something that, that we kind of haven't gone into too deeply, but like these songs are still full of pain and, 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 and anger and stuff, but they're presented in kind of this... Uh, kind of this candy wrapper and, and i think in that sense it is similar to what they were doing on hybrid theory where they took all the heavy stuff but they put a candy coating around it uh whereas this record and especially when we get to the next one uh it's there everything's wrapped in this shiny candy wrapper that's really digestible but whenever you crack it open you're like oh man there's some really bitter stuff in here so for me this album starts like it's going to beat you over the head with keys to the kingdom almost like joe was saying you know bringing in another mr han classic way of you know a lincoln park record starting and then it just kind of falls flat for me um since minutes to midnights i feel like the band's guitars sound have just gotten really thin and just lost its balls um to me i will say when you see it live it some of it's back um but i i just found all the guests on this record for me to be interesting um i mean they've always collaborated with a lot of artists over the years but most of these felt like them bending to the guest style um like Rebellion, I just really having that System of a Down sound vibe to me. Um, outside of the Tom Morello appearance on Drawbar, I, I mean, honestly, I'm not entirely sure what he even did on that song, if I'm being completely honest. 
Um, <laughs> he was Tom Morello, John. He did what Tom Morello does. Yeah. What did he do on that song? Can you point it out to me? Exactly. Because <laughs> like I don't hear any like if you it, other than being like, hey, would you like a like a stone sounding song? I can kind of maybe write a song like that for you guys. Uh, just sans the whammy, the cool whammy bar part that everyone knows. Like I'm just, just the the chords. I'm gonna give you the chords, and that's all I'm giving you. Um, I I don't hear anything that Tom Morello did. I, I feel like that's the weird thing about this record is like it has guests and I'm like, okay, like were you trying to like get some credibility or acceptance back from a scene that you had kind of gone away from or that they're coming back to you or like I, I just don't know like what the goal was with it. And to hear them bend their sound to be like, oh, we have Darren on from System. Here's our system of a down sounding song. It's why I don't like uh, mine or main off of the self-titled Deftones record, because it just sounds like they were like, let's write a song that sounds like Surge would be on it instead of like they did with Passenger or whatever, where they wrote a song and it just happened to have Maynard on it and it sounded really good. Um, again, this is not really anything that's grabbing me personally. Um, and it's just like. There's no song. I mean, Dan, I mean, other than the one Dan said, but like, it doesn't feel like it belongs on this song and overshadows everything else. Um, and, you know, more importantly to me, Bring Me is basically they have some paternal out and they have that's the spirit. And for me, that's really scratching my old school Linkin Park sound itch uh, at this point. So, like, I'll go to Linkin Park to hear the old stuff. But if I want what Linkin Park, I feel like should be sounding like now, if I wanted Meteora and Hybrid Theory in what was this uh, album? Twenty what? Fourteen? You said, Joe. That's right. Yeah. Uh, at that point, I'm going to bring me, and they're going to provide the Lincoln Park sound I have been looking for for the last couple of records. 2017. <laughs> One more light. Hold on, Dan had a comment. I think uh, about the last thing to, to button that up real quick. No, no, I didn't. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I just. This is the part of the conversation I really didn't want to have because I well, my you know intention what? can I can I can I go first because I don't want people to like hear what you're going to say and then just like shut the whole episode off. <laughs> well, it's fine. It's at the end. I mean, we, we got him for an hour and 45 <laughs> minutes. minutes or so. No, go ahead. I'm just joking. I, I think we're all going to have roughly the exact same opinion on this one. I just OK, this is one of those. What were they thinking sort of moments? Um, and it's not that I. I don't hate pop music. I think sometimes people get the impression that I don't like anything that that resembles a good hook or whatever. But like I basically told you that the first two Linkin Park albums are basically pop rock, pop new metal masterpieces and that they're that they're basically perfect records. So, I mean, I can appreciate a catchy song, a pop hook. What you have is a record that basically sounds like a solo project between two singers. It's almost all electronic. It's kind of hard to even say that this record is Linkin Park because it almost doesn't even feel like Linkin Park is present on the record as a band. It's like it's like the the stark opposite of what they were trying to do on Minutes to Midnight, where they're like, we want to sound like a band, you know, in a room playing or a band at a party playing. This is just these are just slow, boring pop songs musically uh, with Chester singing on it, sometimes with Mike singing on it. But I mean, I, is there even any guitar on this record? It's very sparse. Uh, it's not even really a rock record. It's a it's a pure pop record. And I think what's hard about that is that like, why did you call it Lincoln Park? You guys have been known to do side projects, you know. Um, maybe maybe it's just the star power of Lincoln Park. And I could see an old school Lincoln Park fan from the Meteora or Hybrid Theory days 
going back and like like listening to this and being like what is this why would you do that but then on the flip side there could be people that were huge fans of the hunting party that would listen to this and be like what is this why would you do this and i think one of the hardest parts about about all of this is obviously how it ends you know and that with this being the last lincoln park album that, uh, as far as i know um you know how, how this falls into the rest of their discography and it doesn't this isn't one of those situations where there's like a breadcrumb trail throughout their career that led us to this point um this is just very like i don't know what else i, I don't know i don't i don't really know how else to describe it it's just not even the same band it doesn't put for the same vibe the only thing that is even remotely recognizable are chester and mike and really more so chester than mike because mike's not doing his normal thing here that much and I think Chester sounds amazing as a vocalist. I mean, I think his range is incredible, and I think his singing is incredible. His lyrics are also very, very dark for a record that sounds so happy. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's one of those things, and I'm not going to make a whole bunch of grand statements like, oh, we should have seen the writing on the wall, and we should have known, you know, what was going to happen, and da-da-da-da-da. Nobody could have predicted that, you know, and I, and I don't think that the I don't think that the people that criticized this record were wrong. Um, I don't think that Chester Bennington's issue had anything to do with whether this record was well received or not. Um, but I, I think that but for some reason, people attribute it to that. I don't think that's what it is. I think this is just that Linkin Park's never been OK with just being the same band from record to record. They did that once. Evidently, they didn't want to do that again. And so they're constantly trying to redefine themselves and find what the and find what the next step is for them. But I do think that this was kind of a misstep because there's a difference between innovating your sound or trying to redefine yourself and completely alienating your fan base, which is what I think that they really did here. And is this a decent collection of pop songs? Sure, it's fine. If you're into that, it's okay. But compared to like actual pop artists, it's not gonna it's not gonna do the job. It's not compelling enough on its own to generate to generate the type of success uh, that it probably had just because it had the name Linkin Park on it. Are there guitars on this album? Yes. Do they sound like pop music guitars from 2010? Yes. I've heard this record in 2017, but I heard it seven years prior. So now we're going to do the pop music with hip hop and auto-tuned clean vocals. I'm going to talk about Chester for a second. Dude was a fucking powerhouse. I have heard him do everything from straight metal to Linkin Park to dark layered shit with John Davis on the Queen of the Damned soundtrack to the prettiest songs you've ever heard anyone sing ever. Dude did not need auto-tune. And I'm going to pick on this album and say, is it good? No. Do you know why? Because Chester Bennington doesn't fucking need auto-tune to tear your fucking heart apart. And when you put that on him, you just lost me. So explain to me who that's for. I know there's an audience for that because there are thousands of albums that just try to be T-Pain. I get it. Dude didn't invent it, but dude made his name with it. Chester didn't need that, guys. It's a terrible one. As soon as you take that awesome voice and say, well, we're going to fuck with it just because we can. No, I'm not going to let you get away with that one. Well, I mean, more than likely, he probably was totally fine with it if if it wasn't his idea. I mean, you're making it sound like somebody like at knife point was like, all right, we're going to hit the auto tune button. And he's like tied up and he's like, no, don't do it. I've heard you know, worse like, from record labels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's how record labels work. 
Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I thought this was going to be a controversial opinion, but I, I guess not. Um, I've always thought lyrically this was some of the darkest of the band's career. Um, but I thought they got overlooked because of the pop structures they're placed against. But I mean, Dan's kind of pointed it out. So maybe it's not a not as a, a foreign opinion as I thought it was initially going into this discussion. Um, that said, the band that is largely responsible for perfecting what we would kind of be known to be new metal, uh, even though they really only did it on the first two albums and from there would kind of straddle the line between you know electronic and hip hop leanings or even kind of more like and I'm only saying this more because of the tone of the guitars, but kind of like ambient indie rock uh, of sorts. I feel like at this point, maybe the band was just kind of like, or I should say Mike and Chester might have been like, fuck it, let's go full pop. We haven't done that. Let's see what happens. Um, sadly, this doesn't really succeed in that realm either. Like, it's not bad, but like you can tell that Mike isn't a he doesn't write or produce really, quote unquote, pop songs. I think he happens to just know how to make songs catchy and hooky for what he does. And I don't know, this just largely to me felt like a vehicle to showcase Mike's producing work and maybe get Chester into another lane so he could do like a big solo record that didn't sound like a Linkin Park. It kind of was more of a mainstream kind of record. As a whole, this just kind of felt very self-indulgent for two completely different reasons to progress someone else to other people's careers but it never felt like a Linkin Park record to me, um, which is really sad uh, that basically this is the last record we will get under the Linkin Park moniker until basically the vaults get opened and whatever else we get from there will will come out. But this was really just kind of a, a bummer way to end, end the discography, personally. I'd be surprised if there's a lot of stuff in the vault. For as many remix <sighs> albums as we got, I just don't think there's that much. Maybe there is. Maybe I they mean, just truly embraced the... This is the record, so we got to do as much with this as we can. Right. But I don't think we're going to have a Prince situation where Linkin Park has been secretly writing Meteora Part 2, 3, and 4 and just never let anybody hear it. I mean, you never know. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe that's in the, uh, you know, amazing special edition of Meteora that'll come out, you know? I don't know, but I mean, like, I think the thing, you know, when you hear it bands and they go like, oh, we went into the record with 120 songs. I would believe that Linkin Park probably had 120 songs, probably a rough verse, at least most everything fleshed out, and then probably chopped everything up and took the best of everything to make, you know, some of their material. But I wouldn't be surprised if there was actually a lot of ways that they could either manipulate different lyrics that never were used, you know, like almost like the what was it? The bridge section, Joe, you were talking about on a hybrid theory EP. Oh, I'm playing you know, it right now. I'm tired of that fucking record. I'm listening to my damn song. <laughs> as I say, but it's one of those where I could totally see it being a thing where, you know, I mean, that's what I mean, that's how Tupac was able to put out so many records after he died. Like he would have so many different takes of things. And it's like, as long as you can match a BPM to the cadence of whatever you're doing, you can structure a whole nother song around it. And I think uh, Linkin Park is shown with guests and remixes and stuff like that. If there's a whole shitload of material of Chester outtakes, I'm sure they they of all people could manipulate those things to recreate new songs with Chester and fulfill the ideas that never were finished. Final thoughts on Linkin Park. Dan. I think Linkin Park is one of the most important rock bands in recent history. Uh, they've they've done all the things. I mean, they, they've checked all the boxes for things that bands do, <laughs> you know, uh, start off with a bang, change it up a little bit somehow end up gaining more fans from changing it up a bit, uh, go in a couple of really weird directions, but for the most part, solid. 
I mean, out of, out of their career, I can only think of two records that I'm kind of like not stoked on. But I think the most part, with as much experimentation and changes as they made throughout the years, they were able to keep it really, really consistent for the most part. Not in sound, but at least in level of success. And um, some people might say, well, it's, they're just riding off the coattails of the initial success. But I don't know. We'll 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 see, right? Um, I can't I can't imagine there being anything coming out after Chester Bennington's passing. Uh, I don't think that they'll ever replace him. I mean, I don't I don't know how you could, you know. Uh, and you know, a lot of people are going to be like, how come how come you didn't speak to that? Uh, and I just didn't feel it important to speak to uh, uh, speak to his death and or any of that, just because. Um, I think that there's a lot of weird varying opinions about it. <laughs> and uh, I think as the music itself stands, I think that they are one of the most important bands uh, in their genre, whatever that genre is. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you haven't checked out any of this stuff after Meteora, I would say definitely give it a listen. You might find something you really like in there. John, what about you? I think the band is largely looked at and judged based on the first two records. When you think of Linkin Park, you think of Meteora, you think of Hybrid Theory. Um, I think that's kind of discrediting the band and what they have gone on to do. Um, I think Dan's opinion of basically Minutes to Midnight, how he reacted to like when it came out, I didn't like it. Um, going back, you're able to appreciate it more for what it is. I think that's kind of a, an interesting take and I think a lot of people maybe when listening to this might go do the same where they got off on Minutes to Midnight. It was not the record they thought it was going to be. It wasn't the Linkin Park they knew. And to me, I think you're discrediting the band and, and their output because I think there's some really great stuff. I mean, even on the last record, even in their missteps, I think it's interesting because they were a band that always tried to push who and what they were. Um, it's not always great. Um, there's possible reasons why we talked about them, but I, uh, I think they're largely bigger and more than, than what you think they are. And I think that's uh, why they are considered to be one of the bigger and better bands of this era. I think Linkin Park is one of the most important rock bands ever. They are one of the bands that took a hold of the mainstream and held on to it. And no matter how much I think they misstepped along the way, they still held on to it. If Linkin Park showed up, everybody paid attention. They did more things right in the early days, and they tried some shit. And even though some of the stuff they did was not for me, I never gave up on the band. I wanted them to not give us another Meteora, but just continue being that band that truly releases hybrid music. The hunting party was close. In 2014, it was fine. So I think the overall journey of Linkin Park is worth the listen. I just don't know how I feel about One More Light being a straight pop record with Chester being auto-tuned. And that's where I'm going to leave that opinion. Go back and listen to what I said. Linkin Park is awesome, and I want everybody to listen to that band. Are they new metal? I don't think so. But when people talk about new metal bands, Linkin Park is one of the first bands they say. So there's a reason why we're starting this new metal May with that band. Dan, what's your album of the week? I'd be remiss if I didn't say that it was Enjoy Incubus by Incubus. That's not an album, sir. It's fine. John, what about you? My album of the week is It Dies Today, the Forever Scorned EP. For me, it's Anesthetic by Mark Morton. Dude's an independent heavy fucking dude to play some heavy fucking guitars with some heavy fucking songs. And that particular album, 
Chester leads it off as the guest vocalist. So if you ever wanted to hear what Chester sounds like without auto-tune and a metal band behind him, that's a good place to start. Take us out, DFT. If you guys have ever been listening to or watching this podcast and uh, thought to yourself, man, I'd like to suggest a band for these guys to talk about, or I want to tell them that they suck, or I want to tell them that they're awesome, or specifically, I want to tell them that they're wrong. There's a lot of different avenues that you can drive down to get to that point. And uh, I would recommend the following. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash discography discussion. You can send us a message there or comment on our page, or you can join the discography discussion official Facebook group that's there. Uh, You can also join us on our Discord server. There'll be a link in this video and in the show notes for the audio podcast that'll take you to our Discord server. Uh, We're fans of the show and uh, ourselves personally are there uh, chatting with you guys all the time. If you want to get some sweet discography discussion merch, you can go to our Teespring store. There'll be a link in the show notes that'll take you right to our Teespring store where we have all kinds of cool stuff with our logo on it that you can purchase and wear on your body, uh, which I think is, you know, the ultimate form of support. Uh, And you can always send us an email old school at show at gmail.com. So, uh, yeah, we've got some really cool episodes lined up for you guys in May. And uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, if you go to patreon.com and and search for Discuss Metal, uh, you can get access to these episodes earlier than everybody else. And on that note, this has been episode 219 of Discography Discussion. Thank you for listening. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Subscribe to our podcast everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Visit DiscussMetal.com for all things discography discussion. And please send questions and comments to Show at gmail.com. If you are not a patron, you can become one at Patreon.com forward slash Discuss Metal. We have some sweet perks. Give me that money. $1 a month gets you into that exclusive album review feed. 